Hi, and welcome back to OA On Air via social distancing. I'm Kyan Isaacson. This week, Cosmo and I are back with 321 Go. Then we have an interview with Tom Kinton, former CEO of Massport, talking about aviation and travel amidst the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And in two minutes with Tom, Tom and I are talking federal stimulus packages. All right, Kyan, here we are back. Let's do a... Uh... A modified three, two, one, go. I know we don't have our bump, our traditional bumper music here on OA on air, but uh, let's hit a couple topics. Uh, let's step outside reality for a moment, meaning uh, the reality we're all dealing with in isolation during the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, and talk about uh, let's talk about football. Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski together again for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, it's been big news in the sports world, and uh, depending on your view as a Patriots fan, uh, you either love it or you hate it. What camp are you? Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like was it a conspiracy theory? Like, is that why Gronk never truly left the NFL? Like, he was just waiting to see what Brady's next move was going to be. Had he stayed at the Patriots, would Gronk have come back to the Patriots? Or is it just because he wanted to go to Miami? I have a lot of questions. Um, I think it's it's going to be bizarre to see them in different jerseys and not playing for our team. I kind of wish, personally, that Tom Brady had just retired as a Patriot, gone out on top with the team he you know had been successful in, but he had other other feelings. Um, it was a great distraction for a day last week when all of this came out. I thought that was nice. It was nice to see everyone focusing on something else, if only for a few hours, whether it was social media or the news, it was everywhere. And um, yeah, it, it was a welcome break. It was a nice little dose of uh, uh, life before the pandemic, talking you know, talking about the latest uh, football-related news. Look, I, I think like anybody else, Tom Brady sort of, after all, even after all that winning, you you can grow restless uh, with your situation and interested in something else, especially if you know that there's a huge additional financial reward, uh, which there was and there is, and, and and that's part of it, not the only part. With, with with regard to Gronkowski, I think he legitimately, genuinely grew weary last season of the abuse to his body and the, the toll it had taken. Um. And then once he had the opportunity to fully recover, and, and um, uh, you know, and and, and rest, could uh, envision himself playing football again. And I think the Brady decision, the Brady move to Tampa Bay, made that all the more attractive to him. I, I get a kick out of Gronk having to get back in football shape, which to him just simply means I've got to gain ten pounds of, of pure muscle, by the way. Um, yeah. Which I'm sure he can do. Uh, pretty easy. No, I'm sure he can, he can accomplish, but um, I'm interested, and I, I've never really been a, a a fan of an NFC team. So now I get a reason to root for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, and I think that that's kind of cool and interesting. I also have been prepared as a Patriots fan, as a longtime season ticket holder, too, ready for whatever is next for the Patriots, and uh, I'm I'm fascinated by that. Um, you know, I'm not one of those people that was like, oh, it's time for Brady to move along, but I'm okay with it because uh, we have this unbelievable record of success 
in this era, this 20-year era, and now it's uh, time to experience some experience something different. Yeah, and actually, they, I, I think I earlier said Miami instead of Tampa, so forgive me on that. My brain is foggy. I blame, I blame seven weeks at home with a six-year-old while working. It's interesting. So you will you will cheer for like you're going to support Tampa Bay, not not over the Patriots, but there are a lot of people that you know who are diehard Patriots fans who are saying you know good riddance. I'm I won't. I won't at all, but you're saying you will still support them and the Patriots. I have an interest in them and I want to see how they do. And, and it's not the kind of interest where I want them to fail. I'm not buying a Jersey. That's what you mean. I'm not buying, I'm not going, my kid, my kid might buy a Jersey. I don't know. I'm not buying any Tampa Bay jerseys. Although I know some people who have, um, and good luck to them, but, but, uh, no, I, I, I'll have, I'll have an interest, maybe a mild rooting interest. You know, when you're a kid, you have a you you you, you develop a, uh, a fan interest in all kinds of teams beyond your own uh, hometown team. At least in football, you do. At least that you know I was a big Steelers fan when I was a kid. Uh, other kids were Raiders and Cowboys fans. But it'll be interesting to to have an to have a genuine curiosity about how another team does uh, more so than just fantasy football and being a casual fan. Yeah, I think um, for my generation, it was the the other team's interest in fandom came from whatever whatever had the cooler starter jacket. Starter, yeah, that was an the starter <laughs> jacket was a certain era. It's over, but it was an era. <laughs> so, all right, excellent. Oh, that felt Can't nice. Top that. For a few moments there, Cayenne, it almost felt like uh, you know we were sitting in the studio, not confined to our homes, or in my case, our vehicles, confined to our vehicles. Yeah. Podcast. We'll we'll have to discuss that another week. I mean, this is a podcast milestone. This may be the first podcast ever recorded direct from a Ford F one fifty. I I I think I I should get some uh, some kind of promotional value from uh, for the Ford Motor Company. Absolutely, accolades are coming your way, sir. <laughs> All right, let's lightly move back into because there's certainly no uh there's certainly no shortage of COVID nineteen news elsewhere. But just for this week, let's lightly move back into the uh, uh, the reality we're living, and, and and then talk about some of the offbeat elements. I know that look, I cheated, Cayenne. I, I I started a beard before this happened, but it was really a starter beard, um, and now it's like it's this thing's raging, right? I am I am Jerry Garcia. I am the old man, <laughs> the old man of the sea. I'm I'm a, a much stupider uh, Ernest Hemingway. I'm all those things facially, and a lot of other people have got this going too. And um, I think on the other side, there's another COVID nineteen cliche. On the other side of this, going to be a lot of guys with beards. It's it's going to with beards. It's going to be a uh, uh, when barbershops reopen. I think the hipster barbershop, you know, it's a business you might want to be in. Yeah, uh, all of a sudden for for beard grooming. Um, I will say we had a Zoom meeting yesterday uh, internally in our office, and it was the first one of the first ones that we've had um, for this particular group. And it was interesting. A few people, mainly the men, looked different, um, whether it was, you know, hair or facial hair. And it was uh, it was interesting to see. I mean, look, 
carpe diem, right? We're all home. <laughs> Do something different. Try it out. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. No harm, no foul. I think that makes sense. I agree. You know, my hair was growing wildly for a while and it was making me, literally making me, driving me insane, having an impact on my mental health. And finally, I, we figured out a way to cut it. And it, it did, it, it absolutely involved two people working on my head and I, there was significant bleeding. And that's the truth because once I get down to the shaving part, uh, it, it didn't go well. But I, I'm now trying to shave my head every 48 hours or so. And uh, I'm due for one today, just to keep that down. Wow. Um, That's commitment. I watched a YouTube video so that I could give my husband a haircut. That is love and commitment. Thank you. Appreciate that. I think so. All right. Last one: cats and dogs with coronavirus. It's. I don't think it's funny, even though it sounds kind of comical. And, and there was a kind of a strange. I'm not going to mention the, the 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 network or mention the local local. Uh, um, a network affiliate. There's kind of a strange, comical, like heavily comical segment about different COVID nineteen things. It was, and I was like, it might be too early for this. It might be too early for a hundred percent sort of comical COVID nineteen segments. But one of them was referring to a recent test, uh, positive test uh, of a pug. Uh, it's a type of dog. Uh, testing positive for COVID-19. This is several weeks after the first report, I think which was greeted with more alarm that cats in New York City had tested positive. I I don't think it's a good thing for this thing to jump species from bat to human to cat to dog. I I think that's a bad thing. Um, But it, it, you know, it's something and it's, and it's happening. Your thoughts. Um, well, species jumping sounds bad, yes. Um, and I think we knew that, you know, from the bat to the human. But I thought it was interesting a few weeks ago in the midst of the Tiger King craze, which the, the was a show on Netflix, um, the tiger tested positive. And at that point, you know, first of all, on a more serious note, there are human beings that can't get tested. Um, so I understand when people are you know, angered, frustrated, disappointed, saddened, any of those words when an animal is can be tested and humans can't be. Um, there was a tiger at a zoo that tested positive for COVID and everyone's initial responses was sort of, how is a tiger being tested when we don't have access for all people yet? Um, I love my dog very much. I would be devastated if he were to get sick. Um, but I do think, you know, humans should probably be the priority but maybe it's an experimental thing and it's it's necessary i don't i don't know enough i don't know enough about it yeah no it's a good point the why why you know why is there access for a dog or a cat or 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 a tiger um and and just sort of the the why what and why do we have to test it like why What, what who said oh we better test that dog for COVID nineteen, apparently the whole family had it in this, and they were all isolating, and and, and they tested the dog. Yeah, I I don't know if there's a policy question there or not, but uh, sure enough, it happened. So there you go, dogs and cats living together and uh, having and uh, being tested for COVID nineteen. So there we are. All right, Cayenne. Uh, it 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 feels good to have a little bit of uh, more typical banter. Um, even though we're 
right in the middle of, well, we're not in the middle of the surge. We're, I think we're flattening here in Massachusetts, but uh, we're, this is far from being uh, resolved or even uh, dramatically improved. And, and, and um, there'll be time to talk about, and, and probably next week might be that time, the reopening strategy for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and elsewhere, the reopening plan. Uh, this week, the governor moved the uh, extended uh, the shutdown to at least May 18th. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Hi, this is Jen Crouch, and I'm a senior director here at O'Neill and Associates. I'm joined by John Cahill and our guest, Tom Kinton. We're here to talk about the state of affairs in the aviation industry. Uh, certainly, the coronavirus pandemic is something that has been felt uh, travel-wise, internationally and domestically, uh, down about 90, 95% um, currently. What does this mean for the industry as a whole? What does this mean for the individual carriers? Uh, certainly, John, would love your take on what we're hearing this week from some of the individual carriers and, and what is the state of play for them going forward um, in regards to the CARES Act. Well, I saw this morning that the... Uh, CEO of American Airlines forecasting the future and the difficulties they face not only over the summer but into the fall and early next year. He's saying that he believes they'll emerge as a smaller and more efficient airline. And, you know, I wonder in talking to Tom about this over the last several weeks, whether that's going to be true across the board, you know, given American is pretty significant carrier. Do you think do you think that that will be the same for United at all if we do turn the corner on this uh, come the fall winter? Yeah, I think that's probably the best bet uh, and, and, and a hopeful one at that. I mean, I hope they can right size, uh, if you will, because, you know, I, I sort of view this as a, as a three-legged stool. You know, right now we're on the first leg, which is a total shutdown. And 95% of the customers that were there a year ago are gone. And that, that's pretty much across the board. So I, I'm going to call this sort of the bottom. Um, and, and I think the next several months as the states begin a phased reopening and other countries around the world begin phased reopenings, I'll call that the second leg of the stool, which is the transition period, where I am very hopeful, and I think the airlines are hopeful as well, that you start to get some customers back during this transition period. Uh, there's still going to be a lot of fear out there. There's still going to be a lot of companies uh, that are cutting back and are not going to allow travel, for instance, uh, uh, and so forth. So maybe we can expect, hopefully, a 30 to 50% load factor maybe on, on, on a reduced schedule. Uh, and then I'll bring the third leg of the stool in, which is the vaccine, which is, you know, at best six to eight months away and at worst maybe 18 months away. And that, I think, eliminates a lot of issues, fear factors, uh, in, in, in takes that off the table in terms of having people move about and get back to somewhat normal uh, normal life, which will then bring traffic back, 
to the airlines uh, closer to 80, 90% load factors, they can probably then begin to increase schedule and frequency and then open up um, some, some more international flights as well. And following up on that, Tom, what are you seeing in regards to the impact this pandemic is having on the small regional airlines and what will happen to them? Will they survive? Will we lose those those potential routes? Yeah, unfortunately, um, I think they're the weakest link in the chain, um, uh, the regionals. Uh, so my expectation is, you know, there'll be some that will go away as a result of uh, bankruptcy and whatnot. Uh, maybe some merges to save a few, but I would expect that uh, we're going to see the weakness in that end of the business, the regional airline end of it, uh, come to fruition pretty quickly, unfortunately, which will which will mean uh, some of the carriers uh, going out of business and, and the others stepping in to, to pick up the slack. But that's a very important link in the chain. And if we lose some, unfortunately, it's going to mean a loss of air service to to many communities because the majors don't have enough uh, capacity, if you will, even with the idle jets, uh, and they don't have the kind of network it takes to get into some of these communities. So, you know, the CARES Act money is 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 good and is probably going to help several of them, uh, but unfortunately, we may see a couple that uh, don't survive. Unfortunately, yeah. The Oh, I, I think we've already seen, and Tom and I were talking about this the other day, I think we've already seen that the airlines are inclined to try to take steps, enormous reductions in fares to get people back on the aircraft, uh, aircrafts. So if you're, I think we had a discussion this week that American was providing service to Miami for as little as $37 round trip from Boston. And that is going to be one, I, I think, of many steps that the airlines will try to take over the summer to rebuild, uh, you know, the passenger, the passenger flow. And then clearly, the hope would be that you get to the end of September, and uh, there's greater sunlight at the end of this tunnel where you you can see passengers coming back, albeit gradually, gradually, but at least moving in the right direction. So the airlines don't have to go through that terrible process of laying off thousands and thousands of employees uh, who they will need when there is recovery. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, John, that there's going to be uh, incentives here to get people back on the plane, which is going to be cheap airfares. Uh, that's got to be coupled with you know a hotel industry and a resort industry that's also doing the same on their end, uh, you know we can't be having airlines offering you know thirty five dollar airfares round trip and hotels still expecting to get five hundred dollars a night. It's not going to work. Uh, so I think we need incentives right. all across the board um, to get people comfortable, but we also need to make sure airports and airlines and governments have a consistent policy of rules, you know, what are the new rules for entering a terminal going to be? What are the new rules for going through security, for approaching a ticket counter, for boarding aircraft, for sitting in aircraft? Um, you know, I sort of relate this to the, my 9-11 experience, which was, you know, very different, of course, but it was to make people comfortable that 
the security question was answered. Uh, you know, we hardened cockpit doors. We put armed uh, uh, air marshals on flights. Uh, flight crews were armed. Uh, federalization of the security checkpoints. Uh, whole baggage screening. There was a whole list of issues that that were in play that gave the traveling public comfort that the security question was being addressed and addressed well. We have to do the same thing here from a health standpoint. It's not just a question of cheap airfares and cheap hotels, uh, but it's what's going to make that person feel comfortable in this transition period ahead of a vaccine that I'm not going to be, you know, given the same old uh, lines and and so forth that were in place uh, before this happened because they won't tolerate it. We've got to have social distancing. We've got to have barriers. We've got to have more touchless technology. Uh, we can't be handing driver's licenses across to TSA people and having ticket agents, you know, handling. There's got to be some digital uh, technology here that comes into play pretty quickly to change the whole process by which people fly. And that's got to be consistent from airport to airport and from country to country uh, mm-hmm. in order to boost that confidence. Absolutely. The, the, the consistency is the key. And, and that I think what you started with there, Tom, was that the shareholders have to all be on the same page. So if you're if it's an airport operator and it's the airlines, all right, you keep going from there because you're going to need the cooperation of TSA. There may be a continuing role for the CDC in terms of uh, uh, you know, possible testing of passengers. And then, of course, there's the the issue of separation, which means the cooperation of the passengers, which uh, concerns me because I think I've said this to you before that, you know, there has to be some enforcement mechanism to make these rules work. And uh, I, I know we're not there yet because we don't have the rules yet, but we have to think about that and how, what's the most effective way to ensure that the rules are followed. Absolutely. And, you know, just take one simple piece of that, which is processing people through a security checkpoint, picture Mm -hmm. much less customers than we had pre-COVID, however, but picture those with six-foot distances between them and how long those lines are going to be potentially. So I I see opportunities to do other things like remote check-in, off-site check-in, you know, change the you know, flip this thing on its head, uh, allow check-in remotely, and then have uh, a secure bus or something transporting those customers right to the aircraft so that we start to manage, you know, what could become an unmanageable situation of trying to keep lines with six-foot distances. We just don't have the, you know, the terminal capacity to handle those kinds of lines. So we got to think outside the box and one of the things is, you know, remote check-in and uh, remote or, or secure transportation right to the aircraft or right to the other side of security to, again, lessen one impact of the whole traveling process, which is that security checkpoint. Certainly, you're talking, Tom, about a whole just kind of reconfiguring from your car to your 
going through the processing to get to, on the aircraft to landing, a just completely different approach to how we're traveling going forward. I mean, dramatic change more so than ever seen after 9-11. I have to ask, how do you think we even begin to start tackling some of that in the short term and who should be paying for well, it? You, you know, that's a great question because, you know, right now we have a window of opportunity because the terminals are vacant. The aircraft, unfortunately, are vacant. And now's the time to begin planning what the process is going to look like and figuring out who's going to pay for what. If we wait for the customer to return and then begin this process and then try to figure out it's going to be too late, we're going to exhibit, you know, a sense of unpreparedness and the customer is going to get frustrated and they're going to go away and not come back. And we can't afford that. So we've got to take advantage of this opportunity and this downtime to figure it out. And again, I, I don't think the industry has all the answers yet, but it's, it's crying out for task force, you know, made up of airlines, as John said, CDC, local officials, airport officials, and, and start developing what this is going to look like. Because as these states begin to open, at least from a domestic standpoint, I think we're going to see passengers starting to return. Um, and if they're confronted with a, an unorganized and unprepared industry, and I put that in broad terms, and I, I loop everybody under that definition, it's not going to it's not going to uh, bode well for us. So I, I think now's the time. Let's take advantage of these several weeks and maybe months we have in front of us to to lay this process out um, right now and, and figure out that question you ask, which is who pays for it? Is it the airport, the airline? Is it the city? Is it the FAA? Is it DOT? You know, who is it? Yeah. Well, the, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the task well, force, uh, Tom, because uh, that goes right to our difference under Ed Markey's introduction to what's occurring today of a bill to just do just that, to create a task force with the full participation of all these stakeholders. The airlines are included, TSA, DHS, Department of Transportation, the airports, CDC. Uh, and, and some other component parts to try to reach a consensus, a, a recommendation consensus, I guess the way he puts it, where you come out here shortly. You can't take too long to do this because you say the opportunity is now. It's not eight months from now. So rapidly come out with recommendations, some of which I guess will be obvious. Others may be more difficult to achieve, but things that you need to do to give people a sense of security so they'll come back. And uh, so he's doing that today, and and my guess is we're going to see the same initiative in the House, and maybe in the next few weeks we'll see it actually be passed into law, and then these folks can get going on these recommendations. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very timely. I think the senator is uh, proposing something that's well well thought of right now, uh, and and let's get it done, and let's get the right people in the room, and let's figure this thing out. Well, certainly, I hope that we can be back in touch with the two of you to get your take on things once the task force is certainly hopefully underway when it's included in the next, uh, I guess we're calling it phase four of the stimulus relief um, that we're going to be looking at that Nancy Pelosi is hoping to get done in May. And, you know, it certainly will be a busy summer of uh, 
of planning and uh, taking a look at, you know, how we travel going forward. So I appreciate both of you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Hi, Cayenne. Hi, Tom. How are you? I'm doing fine. You know, under the under the circumstances, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Hunkering down at my house and uh, getting through. I think it's the eighth week. Eighth week. I've been home isolated or home uh, isolating myself for the last, I think, six, five weeks, five weeks. But it's the eighth week of the pandemic. Unbelievable. Um, yeah. And the conversation today. Huh? And we're and we're still here, hanging out, making it happen. Yep, we are still here, taking care of ourselves and our families and our our friends, and making sure that everybody's safe and healthy as best they possibly can. Although this this virus gets closer and closer to home every day, where we hear of families and friends of people who have had the virus. Um, in some cases, didn't know it. In some cases, it was before the the virus hit and um, weren't calculated into the data. Uh, but now have been now have been tested and have been shown that they in fact were afflicted. Anyway, um, there's a lot of homework yet to be done on this, and not the least of which are these stimulus monies that continuously come into our various industries. I know that's what yeah, you wanted yeah. to talk about today. Yeah, so we had uh, 3.5 as it's been um, dubbed this week. Uh, but already, you know, as soon as 3.5 was out, already discussions about what round four will look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about that, where, you know, the federal government is um, incredibly, you know, active in trying to figure out what organizations need, what businesses need, and how best to stimulate the economy um, as we continue to battle this pandemic. Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about the about the missteps of the first three and a half stimulus packages. Um, by that, I mean not enough information or direction w- w- was given to banks, number one. So there was, there was there was some, you know, there were missteps that were taken by banks trying to get that money out into needy hands, number one. Number two, some industries went after the money, received the money, and then found that by employing or bringing back folks to work, there was no place for them to work. And in other cases where if they were unemployed on unemployment with the additional $600 check per week, in some cases, people were making more on that, incenting them not to go back to work. Um, And so the thing, all the programs were really not thought out. And now eight weeks into the effect of the coronavirus, we, we know we can begin to see the effect on health, on hospitals, on delivery of care on people not showing up to hospitals to have elective surgeries for people too afraid when they're when they should be in, in an emergency room too afraid to go because of the virus and catching it um, we have industries like higher education there was a wall street story this morning wall street journal story this morning that said of the hundred of the thousand liberal arts colleges in america 10 percent of them will be closed in the next five years um, because we know that so many of the smaller schools are teetering on the brink of financial disaster and the virus has just impacted that picture that much more. Um, we, we know too that there are whole industries that had not been thought of before that have been affected. 
and, and supply chains have been affected as well. Early on, you know, we, I think the decision was made in Washington by the administration and by leaders in Congress that they weren't going to make the mistake of the Great Depression. Back in 29, 30, and 31, government chose not to spend money and not to create programs, and more and more people continuously were unemployed, and the, the economic devastation hit. Ever since FDR, the, the notion has been spend money, get money into people's hands, keep the economy going, and keep people spending. So now we're talking about a four, another 400 million or half billion dollar program in stimulus four. And beyond that, they're talking about another trillion dollars in an infrastructural package. Mm-hmm. There are, there are, at some point, people are gonna stop saying, when do we stop creating money? Because it may not be helping. Now, I say that in light of the fact that in Massachusetts in the first quarter, our GDP, dropped that's our gross domestic product dropped six percent the prior quarter it was up three and a half percent in this quarter the second quarter of 2020 it's going to drop another 20 percent gdp that will not get recovered we also have 24 percent of our workforce out of work yeah those are lasting effects we are also a state with the 11th or 12th largest, largest population, but the third largest number of COVID-19 cases being reported and deaths due to the, due, due to the virus. That, that all has impact, and we're still in the beginning stages of a surge. There are certain industries, certain industries are going to need help. We know that, that our frontline folks, our fire, our police, our city workers, teachers, are going to need some additional help. We know that schools of higher education, because it means so much to our economic well-being, need to be taken care of. And we know our healthcare institutions need to be taken care of. Mm -hmm. And that's where the money has to go. Um, And and, and it really must go there. Um, And we forget, too, that, you know, that Massachusetts, you know, everything you just uh, rattled up, you know, GDP in our economy was in a really strong position to start. Um, so when we think about it, I think it's easy for us to be concerned here in Massachusetts, but for other states that weren't as, even as well positioned as ours before this um, are going to get hit even harder. That's the belief. And that's what the that's what the scientists are telling us. Um I also see that Charlie Baker this morning is looking to move to the first phase of economic reopening. Um, And I know he's got his heels on the ground going very slowly. It's going to be, his opening is going to be data-driven. It's going to be as safe as he can possibly make it. Uh, Mm -hmm. We also have seen the, the scientists and physicians at the Mass General Hospital and the partners saying, We've got to slow this down because we're only in the beginning stages of the surge. We don't yet know what's going to happen during the course of the summer or if in the fall we see a second surge, which will be worse. So there are all kinds of cautionary notes and and blue and yellow and and red lights blinking on and off about the start go, stop go, stop, stop messages which are being sent. So we've we've got some more time to figure this out. Well, we will um, more more federal stimulus packages to come, more to talk about in the weeks to come. But thank you for uh, for the update. 
It's always nice to talk to you. And uh, I look forward to doing it again next week with you. Thanks, Cayenne. On behalf of all of us here at O'Neill & Associates, we hope you and your families are staying safe and healthy. We're proud to continue our work during this time and we'll continue doing everything we can to keep you updated. For daily city, state, and federal updates on the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, please check out our website where updates are posted every morning. OA On Air is produced and edited by Ashley Locken and Catherine O'Brien. Talk to you next week.